everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Put yourself in a customer's shoes. Be a customer for a day. Go onto social media, take a drive around, look at the billboards, look at the signs, look at the ads that are being served up to you. What's attractive? What do you like? What stands out? What feels cool? Having a barometer for what really impacts somebody is important. And then translating that into your own campaigns is key. What do underwear models, Frank Sinatra impersonators, and a partnership with Anheuser-Busch have to do with selling alcohol? For Saucy, it was about changing consumer behavior in an industry that hasn't truly been disrupted since the 1930s. Chris Vaughn is the founder and CEO of Saucy, an alcohol delivery service that since launching in LA in 2014 has broken into 20 metro areas and has continued to grow. Getting off the ground wasn't easy though. And on this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Chris takes us through the trials and tribulations of bringing Saucy into the market, from regulatory issues to investor and consumer skepticism. Plus, he explains how they pushed through those hardships and used edgy creativity to break into a market that was set on shutting them out. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles. And today on the show, we have Chris Vaughn, the CEO and founder at Saucy. Chris, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. It might be 9 a.m. here, but I'm trying to get into the uh, beverage mindset right now, thinking about my 5 p.m. drink. Yeah, nice. Good. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So Saucy, tell me a little bit about what it is and how you started it, the whole backstory. I want to know it all. Sure. So we started Saucy in, in late 2013. We really had this hypothesis that, uh, I guess even before it was a hypothesis, we had this idea that you could have basically anything you wanted delivered, but for some reason you couldn't have alcohol delivered. You know, in some major cities like New York, the bodegas would run it over to you and whatnot. But for the most part, in a city like LA, where we're based, that really wasn't an option. Um, And found that to be really interesting, particularly given that the buying behavior around alcohol seems to be such an impulse-driven buy. You know, I know I'm going to have dinner tonight. I know I'm going to buy groceries at some point this week or next week. And delivery for those categories sort of mirror that behavior. You know, grocery delivery is more about saving me the time of shopping the whole store. Food delivery is this, you know, convenience-driven thing. I know I'm going to have dinner, but it's kind of, uh, what do I feel like having? And alcohol is this heavily impulse-driven buy where maybe I I have dinner and it gets to be eight, nine o'clock at night. I'm watching a show or Netflix or whatever it may be. And I feel like having you know, some wine, or I feel like having, you know, a cocktail or a beer or whatever it is, or some friends are going to come over and, and they text me, hey, you want to get together, and then you need to buy something. And so 
given that the buying behavior was so, again, I think a non-planned purchase occasion, we found that delivery would be the perfect fit for that type of purchase. So we started to look into the industry a little bit. And I think that the things that really opened my eyes was there clearly had been very, very little innovation in the alcohol industry really since prohibition. You know, there, most of the innovation had taken place on the brand side, creating new brands, new brand categories, but very little to do with how alcohol gets distributed or purchased. It was also fascinating to see that the brick and mortar landscape had effectively been built out to mirror that type of impulse driven buying. You know, there's, there's more liquor stores in the United States than grocery stores or gas stations. Yep. And that mirrors this behavior of, oh, I, I feel like having something run out to the corner and go get it. And then lastly, I think we, we clearly identified that there was huge brand loyalty when it came to the products. You know, I'm a bullet bourbon drinker. I'm a Tito's vodka drinker. I'm a, you know, Coors Light drinker, whatever it may be, but almost no loyalty when it came to retail. You know, I'm on my way home. I'll stop here. I'm on my way to my friend's house. I'll stop there. And with the exception of some major holidays, major holidays, go to Costco, stock up or, or some of that, that type of buying. So we found that delivery would be the ideal use case um, where we could not only capture more of a customer's purchases than any of the traditional brick and mortar players, but obviously service and provide you know, a solution to this need of, of this impulse driven, driven buying or this last minute buying. And we actually came up with the idea where, or, or how we came up about Saucy was, I had floated it by a very close friend of mine at the time. We were working at another company and my girlfriend at the time, now wife with three kids, we were camping up in Yosemite and we went up on this big hike and I just couldn't get it out of my head. And I was talking through it with her and she was like, I think you should do this. And I came back and, and shared it with, uh, you know, my close friend and another close friend at this company called Text Plus, where we were all working, Daniel Lieb and Andrew Zeck. Andrew Zeck was uh, one of their head mobile engineers and, and ran their whole iOS team. Daniel Lieb was effectively leading their product of those teams. And so, listen, I think there's a big opportunity in, in alcohol delivery. And I think that the, the margins are there to support the business. It's a little brutal in food and some of these other categories, but I think we, we can do it in alcohol. And and here's what I think it could look like. And immediately we started sort of working together nights and weekends, spending a lot of time, you know, on the weekends and, and late into the night trying to put this thing together. Dan did all these initial mocks of what it would look like. We didn't have the name Saucy at the time. Um, we were trying to think of different names. Andrew was starting to program what the prototype would be. And, and, and we were working on doing all the specs. And then uh, I was out trying to find who our first liquor store partner was going to be and, and working with you know, legal counsel and, and then subsequently talking to the, the ABC and some of the regulatory bodies on, we would like to do this. How do we do it? Not only in compliance, but what are some of the issues you guys have in this industry and, and how, as we're thinking about it, how can we maybe solve some of that stuff like underage drinking and be more proactive about ID verification or, you know, all these cash under the table transactions, have everything go through credit cards. And so it was, a, it was a fascinating time. We started working on that in, I want to say, October, November of 2013. We really got our heads down and we launched in May of 2014. And our, our first ever delivery, so remember, Andrew dispatched it, Dan and I drove it, was a, a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label to a guy named Vincent Rella, who we actually ended up hiring not that long after. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Go, Vincent. Yeah, it was it was interesting times. So how did Vincent find you? Like first customer, did he actually find your app or what? Like, how did he even stumble upon you guys? 
I think Vinny had loosely known Andrew. Okay. Um, and Andrew, we all posted on Facebook and we, and we did all these things and, and he saw the post and just said, Oh, I'll try that. And we ran the order to him and, and Andrew goes, Oh yeah, I know that guy. And, and then, um, you know, it was exciting. And of course those, those early days we got, you know, one order, or two orders in a day. And, and we did all the deliveries ourselves, taking turns on a schedule throughout the week, having to rotate, you know, who was going to be dispatching, who was going to be out delivering. And so we sort of a, an internal irony to the story was, you know, we kind of wanted the service, right? We wanted to, to be able to order a bottle of wine or a case of beer or something to your house. And so we built it. But what we actually ended up doing is just all of our time seven days a week was out delivering to everybody else. And then we could never use it ourselves. Yeah. So it was um, interesting. When you guys were doing that, any funny stories that you remember from your when you were personally delivering or doing the pickups and drop offs? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of interesting stuff. Let's hear them. You know, I think, I mean, we we did probably a thousand orders between us before we started really hiring um, any sort of outside couriers. And so, you know, at the time, alcohol delivery was also very new, which I think is interesting when you think about delivery as a category. You know, food delivery has been around for decades. Grocery delivery has been around for decades in one form or another. You used to be able to call the corner grocery store or place a fax order and have things brought to you from your local market. Alcohol delivery in most major metros started six or seven years ago with us and a few others. And so it was a very new behavior. I think all the customers in the early days, the first initial hurdle, everyone was just asking, is this legal? <laughs> Everybody, investors, customers, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we had to do a lot of work, both in sort of our email content, as well as in our investor materials to walk through, you know, conversations we had had with the regulatory bodies what the law says, you know, how we think about these different things. Mm -hmm. But those early customers were just kind of like, is this legal? I don't know. I'll try it. Sounds cool. Press a button. Boom. Like sneaking out behind their bush, like, okay, drop off the goods. <laughs> exactly. And, and then and we'd show up in, you know, 25, 30 minutes and, and they were blown away. But we definitely had a couple of customers uh, open their door, just totally nude <laughs> and totally unfazed. And you had to sort of do a double take and then, you know, can I see your ID? <laughs> oh my gosh. They'd walk back, come back, still totally naked, hand you their ID, you'd scan it and then turn over their order. That definitely <laughs> happened more than once. Awkward. You know, people with unusual animals or, or pets, there was one customer that had like a snake wrapped around her arm. Uh, I remember one of us delivered and was trying to hand it to her and the snakes on her arm and, and we were like, wow, this is uh, some interesting stuff. <laughs> but also uh, lots of just, you know, fairly standard and normal deliveries for the most part of, of people just super excited to use the service and, and check out what it was all about. Yeah, that's really fun. So what kind of challenges did you run into when you were starting this and working with these agencies and whatnot? Yeah, so licensing and working with licensed retailers is, is a challenge. The regulatory environment of alcohol being different on a state-by-state -state basis. So you're effectively dealing with 50 countries in the US as opposed to you know having uh, the rules all be the same. You can't ship alcohol across state lines, uh, spirits and other things. So, you know, there's just a lot of barriers and a lot of reasons as to why e-commerce has not taken place historically in, in alcohol. Mm -hmm. While fashion and consumer electronics and even cars and all these other things have picked up, you know, big followings in the e-commerce world, set up an East Coast warehouse and a West Coast distribution center, take online orders, ship them out to everybody, and then optimize more distribution centers to get faster delivery times. You know, in alcohol, there is a whole series of, of barriers. So one that you mentioned is regulatory. 
you know, you have to work with a licensed retailer or get a license yourself. If you're going to get a license yourself and you don't previously have one, that can be a very long and arduous process as to proving, you know, you are who you say you are. There's something in alcohol called the, the three-tier system, which means you can only effectively be a, a manufacturer, a brand like Anheuser-Busch, mm-hmm. a distributor like Southern Wine Spirits or Southern Glaciers, or a retailer. And if you're one, you can't be the other. So alcohol flows through that three-tier system. There's some exceptions in wine, obviously, but it divides up the industry in many ways. And, you know, there's many reasons why I think even on, in like the private equity world, you know, there's been roll-ups of laundromats, there's been roll-ups of car washes, there's been roll-ups of grocery chains, there's been roll-ups of, you know, basically any category you can think of. When it comes to alcohol, it can get pretty difficult because when you're trying to roll up a bunch of liquor stores or roll up a bunch of these licensed entities, you know, these different regulatory bodies want to know every single person that has even a fractional amount of ownership. Um, and so you could have a PE firm or a venture firm all of a sudden be in a situation where, you know, they're having to go back to their LPs to get identification cards from people to list them on licenses. And so it's just a very challenging, you know, environment as to how people have been able to operate in the space. I think also because the shipping regulations, you had a lot of categories that were, you know, it, it's not as simple as just setting it up and shipping. And then take that a step further when you think about fundraising or capital, a lot of endowment funds, pension funds have carve outs for things like nothing, you know, don't touch anything to do with alcohol, tobacco, firearms, pornography. And so there's entire institutions or, or very large venture funds or funds of funds that have invested in all these different VCs that, you know, in those early days just wouldn't touch alcohol as a category. So when you think about, you know, building a service in an e-commerce space where you can't ship all over the place, that's a challenge. Everywhere you go, you have to deal with licenses and or different regulatory guidelines on a state-by-state basis. That's a challenge. When you're looking to raise capital, large sums of capital to go and attack this big problem, and there's whole buckets of capital that literally can't touch the category, that's an uphill battle. And so most, I think, the, the capital injections into the industry have usually been families that have come in, or you've seen, you know, someone's creating a brand, they usually do these friends and family rounds. But again, very little going into like a big marketplace or very little, mm-hmm. you know, venture or private equity money pouring into the space over the years. And so some of the big challenges that we had was in, in all of those buckets, dealing with, you know, we launched in LA, but then dealing with even expanding into other cities, looking at the regulatory environment as you go into other markets, thinking about licenses and protecting our partners' licenses, ensuring ID verification, the way that payments worked, uh, worked properly. You know, you just have to be very careful on the regulatory side and on the capital raising side, you have to be very resourceful in thinking about, you know, who your partners were going to be and, and who you'd be able to raise capital from. I think some of that's changed now, you know, particularly during COVID and the acceleration of a lot of things online, you're seeing all sorts of barriers and, and regulatory guidelines be changed or altered in, in some ways to adapt to this new normal. And that includes capital as well. But back then, it was very much a little bit of a taboo service and, and taboo marketplace that we had to raise money for. Yeah, I was just going to say, how did you, I mean, with all of those things you have to think about, and then you also have to think about building local marketplaces to you know, find the drivers and find the retailers and the customers. Like, how did you figure out which step needed to come first without getting overwhelmed? Because that whole list that you just gave me, I'm like, oh, I would have given up. That's like very intense. And I don't even know where to start. So how did you kind of unravel that and figure out like, here's the things that we want to focus on first? Like, did you focus on the product or the regulatory aspect? Or did you kind of like divide and conquer? We divided and conquered. You know, I think as founders, we've been extremely fortunate that we just work really well together. You know, we still hang out together. We're still very close friends today. That's not always the case with people who've been working together for over six years this closely. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 
couldn't find a, a better group of people to work with and just have sort of inherent trust in each other as we're building this thing. So, you know, a lot of my role in those early days was sort of the regulatory and compliance and working with the different regulatory bodies and legal counsels and whatnot. And that really was, you know, sort of gating factor one. If you don't do that correctly, as we saw with other services, you could be shut down tomorrow or your ops could be turned off. And then you could also have that stigma against your business. So you got turned off. You're a little blase about how you're thinking about, you know, the rules in a regulated environment. So we had to be just above reproach when it came to that. Yep. Two, Dan and Andrew were really focused on uh, the product and engineering. And then when we put those things together, it was, uh, you know, definitely a collective effort, but also fell heavily on my plate as it related to capital raising. So Dan and Andrew in many ways were I think running and setting up a lot of the operations of the business product, the design, the roadmap. And I was out there, you know, bringing, bringing in the dollars and, and making sure that we don't all get arrested. So it was very good in the, in the early days, uh, you know, to be able to work that closely together. And obviously that's permeated throughout our, our journey over, over the years. And then I think, yeah, we knew sort of early on that it's a big opportunity in the space and that you'd be, have to be willing to take on a certain amount of brain damage if you were going to build something great here. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit of a, a moat. You know, we've seen a lot of people kind of dip their toe in alcohol, realize there's all these compliance things or, or, or whatnot, and just sort of give up. And so we, I think, over the years have developed a little bit of a, a specialty or, or become known for as entrepreneurs as the guys that are willing to go through just crazy amounts of complexities and brain damage when, when other entrepreneurs maybe wouldn't take on those challenges. Yeah. And love it or hate it, that's become uh, our specialty to some degree. That's great. So tell me a little bit about some of your early marketing efforts. They looked pretty unique. And I was hoping you could kind of touch on that and talk about how you acquired some of your early customers. Sure. The early days, you had very small budgets. You know, I, I, when we first launched, I mean, we were effectively bootstrapped and, and very shortly after, after launching, had raised a small amount of money from an angel who was a terrific early believer in the company and maintained a supporter throughout the years. But, you know, I mean, how do you make as much noise as possible with, with very uh, small budgets? And, you know, we just had this approach of we're in the alcohol space. I think, I think our, our first sort of thing we looked at was retail alcohol does marketing very poorly or in a very boring way. Mm -hmm. If you look at how customers are adopting, you know, sort of any type of brand or brand category or marketplace, Usually there's a little bit of brand, brand identity or, or something you're trying to communicate to them. Retail alcohol is literally just, hey, we have Smirnoff, it's on sale, come to me. Yep. Hey, I have Sky Vodka, it's on sale, come to me. There's almost nothing, even if you look at the brand names and logos of most of the major alcohol retailers throughout the country, I mean, they're just kind of like gimmicky, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So we knew that we wanted to take more of the the marketing style that takes place in the on-premise world, bars, restaurants, hospitality, leisure, et cetera, et cetera, that I think translates some of these alcohol brands' vision to the customer very well, which is not, hey, come to our bar, restaurant, hotel, whatever, because we have alcohol here. It's come here because it's a good time and you'll be here with friends and all these things. And then alcohol sort of subtly sits in the background. And we wanted to mirror that type of approach over to the off-premise world where it wasn't, hey, come here because we have alcohol or, hey, or alcohol delivery, or hey, get beer delivered, or whatever, maybe it was trying to communicate fun and interesting messages, plans for people, different things they could do in their city, wild and crazy activations that just got them excited, and just fell falling in love with the brand. And then sort of subtly, by the way, we deliver, you know, beer, wine, spirits, mixers, snacks, ice cream, all this type of stuff. And so our early activations really mirrored that philosophy of saying, 
you know, how, how are we going to deliver plans to people or excitement to people? And, and one of our, our first big stunty activations, we partnered with a, a terrific company, LA company called uh, MeUndies, mm-hmm. which is the world's most comfortable underwear. And we just said, how do we make, you know, get a bunch of attention together and do something that customers would love. And we came up with MeUndies underwear models delivering sleepover packs that were pajamas and, and underwear and, and a bottle of tequila or a bottle of wine or whatever it may be. It was male and female underwear pairs you know, uh, underwear models going out and, um, and delivering. Were they just in their underwear? They were just in their underwear. So you'd have anybody who ordered to have this, uh, you know, female and male uh, underwear model come and show up at their house and, and deliver their sleepover pack. And, and we did it, you know, just a, we, we structured a great partnership together, uh, rolled it out and, you know, we got just shy of a hundred million press impressions inside of a week, wow. you know, basically for free. We also did a, uh, on um, Frank Sinatra's birthday in December, we partnered with the, the Sinatra family, Jack Daniels, and, and uh, I believe it was Universal Music. And anybody who ordered Jack Daniels, it would be delivered by a Sinatra impersonator and they'd give you an LP and sing songs to you and do all this type of stuff. And we did a handful of other, you know, really stunty activations. We took a page out of Uber's book. We, we've delivered, you know, cuddly puppies and donated proceeds to different animal charities and all sorts of stuff like that. And then we, we backed those types of campaigns with other things that we could afford at the time, which was we did a lot of door hanger campaigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a lot of uh, early stage sort of direct mail to 21 plus mailing lists. We did you know, a lot of Facebook ads, uh, Facebook native ads at the time. You know, In the early days of any marketplace, you can acquire tons of customers on Facebook relatively cheaply. Yep. And then your CACs start going up. So it's always a challenge to figure out you know, as you saturate a channel or saturate a market, how to change either how you're running the ads or you know, new ways to acquire customers and not be so dependent on one channel. But in the early days, it was, it was bracketed of let's deliver wild and crazy activations that get people talking about us. And then let's backfill that with a little bit more direct response media that, uh, you know, maybe they heard about us from a friend because we did this crazy thing. And then they saw us on Facebook and then they saw us on their door. And the combination of those things, hitting people multiple times, really drove a lot of that early adoption. Yeah, that's really, really fun. Love that story. Such a good idea and a good reminder to be creative in the early days and get the most bang for your buck. So what does your customer acquisition look like today? And how are you measuring that? It's a little different today, you know, running across a lot more channels. But, you know, I would say that a, a core tenant of our marketing has always been our referral program. We think that that's, you know, the, the best way that anybody's going to adopt a new service or product is hearing about it from a friend. And so we always push our referral program. It's always been our highest performing and fastest conversion customer acquisition channel. Though we do run ads across, you know, tons of different paid media channels. Obviously, the social, you know, podcasts, radio, out of home, less so out of home right now for obvious reasons. And then we do a lot of partnerships with the big alcohol brands to drive awareness through some of their channels. We work with different influencers, and then, you know, have started exploring some things like streaming and and whatnot. I think the most fascinating things that have happened on, on all these channels, sort of during COVID is obviously about 50% of somebody's alcohol purchases. It's usually fairly split between on-premise and Mm off-premise, you know, bars, restaurants, stadiums, hotels, et cetera, over here, grocery stores, alcohol delivery services, e-commerce, you know, whatever over there. And half of those purchase venues effectively got turned off. So you had this influx of 50% of somebody's buying jump over to the other side, the uh, off-premise buying behavior. And then you had people not wanting to go wait in lines and all this type of stuff. And so the search traffic went through the roof, time to first conversion shortened at rates that we had never seen before. We had higher intent, you know, customers coming in, 
and just looking for alcohol delivery. Is this even possible? Is it possible in my city? So, you know, we've been fortunate enough to have a great ops team that, you know, we've expanded dramatically our footprint. We've launched dozens and dozens of, of new markets and cities over the past few months, been acquiring customers in all those new markets and cities, partnering with terrific brands to help drive awareness and, and, and let people know that they can use the service. And then, you know, acquiring people at, at very different numbers than we've seen historically. Mm-hmm. An example would be, you know, when COVID really started to kick off, you know, our, our Facebook customer acquisition cost dropped to about a tenth of what it's been for roughly six years. Oh. Time to first conversion, which you know, I'll share is usually around 14 days. Someone downloads the app and then they're kind of waiting for that first use case. You know, oh, I, I feel like having that bottle of wine or, oh, I'm watching a show. I'll, I'll try ordering a six pack of beer, whatever it is dropped down to effectively a day. People were just searching for the service, found it, used it. And then second purchase happened before that 14-day mark as well. So you went from having time to first conversion be 14 to 20 days. And then it's all about getting into that second and third purchase. You had purchase one, purchase two basically happening inside of that first purchase period of time. You had the customer acquisition costs on a lot of major channels dropped to a tenth of what they normally had been. And then we saw, you know, other people willing to spend a lot more media dollars. And, and then, you know, obviously when you think about marketing as well, so much of it is just how do you cut through the noise? If you go back, you know, there's a lot of terrific documentaries on Netflix about the history of sort of ad agencies and all this stuff. But, you know, there wasn't tons of marketing being thrown at people the way it is today back in the 50s and 60s. And so a creative ad like the, the Volkswagen Think Small or something like that could just cut through everything and take over a nation. Yep. Today, it's very difficult. How do you come up with campaigns that cut through the noise, that feel genuine, that people respond well to? But when you had you know, entire industries be negatively impacted by this pandemic and pull back a lot of their marketing spend, a lot of that quote unquote marketing noise had died down. And so if you were a service that was still operating, the ability to just make sure that customers knew about you was in a heightened state that it had been in. And so there's been a lot of changes over the past couple of months, both in terms of how we do marketing operations and work with our customers. But um, yeah, we've obviously been very blessed by sheer dumb luck in this sense, on being in a category that has been positively impacted as opposed to negatively impacted. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's amazing. Yeah, very cool to hear about the uh, time to first conversion and all that. How would you guide someone to create a marketing campaign that does stand out among the noise and like even outside of a pandemic and how, like how to make sure it's authentic, but also unique. And like, how do you guys even think about that when building your campaigns? Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds cliche. It's just put yourself in the customer's shoes, you know? be a customer for a day, go on to social media, take a drive around, look at the billboards, look at the signs, look at the ads that are being served up to you. What's, what's attractive? What do you like? What stands out? What feels cool? You know, having a, a barometer for just what I think really impacts somebody is important. And then, and then translating that into your own campaigns is, is key. You know, we've done most all of our stuff over the years in-house you know, in, in terms of, you know, ad copy and ad creative and, and CRM creative and copy and all that type of stuff. But, you know, it's just putting yourself in, in the customer's shoes, what feels genuine, find brands that, that you really like what they're doing. And they feel honest and interesting and original, and they create interesting templates and guidelines. You know, there's a creative agency called Gin Lane, which has since pivoted into creating their own products that built these sort of templates for a whole bunch of companies, you know, one being hims and hers. Mm-hmm and a handful of other, you know, very well-known brands today. But yeah, I mean, it's just what feels honest, what stands out and do things that get people talking. You know, it's fairly simple, but I think our barometer has just always been, if you do what gets people talking and is cool and genuine, then people will talk about it. 
and they will share with their friends. If you do something kind of boring or off-putting, you know, who cares? Yeah, you'll be like everyone else. I love that. So with all the changes that have been happening, what kind of updates did you have to make to your website, if any? Like, is there anything that you completely changed uh, to try and, you know, or website or app, either one, where you're like, this is a new kind of user that's coming in, or now we have this new group that we need to focus on retaining who has never been here before. Like any strategic updates or changes that you've made to your mobile or desktop presence that have really positively impacted um, like conversions and revenue and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I mean, some of the initial stuff was was very simple. It was just categories. So obviously coming into the app, you know, in those early days, people were looking for anything from wine, but also PPE equipment and masks and gloves and hand sanitizer and things like that. And a lot of our stores and markets carried those things, mm-hmm. toilet paper, you know, paper towels, et cetera, you know, canned soup, frozen pizzas. And so we've had that stuff for years, though a lot of people don't necessarily know it, but it was just making sure that that was very prominent in both our content marketing, as well as, you know, in the app and, and, and the website. So when people showed up, they knew that that was available and they could use it. And then, you know, operationally, it was obviously just getting out in front of a lot more, a lot more people. So rapid expansion of our delivery footprint and neighborhood coverage throughout the country so that more and more people could use us. And then, you know, obviously all the, the communication and work that went into little things operationally, like, you know, in certain states, it requires signature capture at the time of delivery, not just, not just ID capture, but signature capture as well you know, working with um, different people to get those signature capture requires lifted. So you could have more of a contactless delivery. You know, it's not the same as delivering, you know, a sandwich where it can just be left at your door. You do have to see the person. Mm -hmm. You do have to sort of visually identify them and scan their ID, but that can still happen in a contactless manner where they just sort of hold out their ID, you scan with the phone and, and nobody's, you know, swapping goods or anything like that. So, you know, yeah, there, there's little things around, you know, COVID protection, primarily around contactless delivery and, and ensuring, uh, you know, signature capture was waived in, in certain states, showing more prominently categories of products that people were looking for, but particularly around stocking up or staying safe at home or, or staying up, staying safe with PPE gear, putting up protocols to all of our retail partners on how they need to be picking and packing products and operating at retail. And in some cases, helping them source their own protective gear. And then, yeah, on the site and, and in the communication and email, you know, I was recently speaking to somebody else about this, but, you know, we just had to basically torch all of our uh, content marketing that was planned. Mm-hmm. March was all March madness. We had tons of ad campaigns and, and things lined up for that, you know, going into, into different uh, sports seasons and sports openers, you know, all of that media and content pretty much could seem, could be very tone deaf mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> if you just went as is. So all of our planned like content marketing and, and even some of our campaigns and, and video shoots or photography, all those things were basically just, Nixed it all and had to start from scratch on the on the marketing side. But the team there did a fantastic job. Yeah, it seems like there's so many things that were changing and you guys were able to act really quickly to pivot and showcase the products that were already there and personalize it in a different way. So yeah, that's really awesome. What kind of metrics are you looking at to measure success for your business? You know, for us, it's alcohol is uh, a little bit different than food, right? Food you eat every day. Or dog walking was a big category. People, I remember early days, some of these venture guys, I don't think quite understood the category, you know, not speaking about our investors, speaking about other people that we would pitch. And they would ask things like, well, we saw this dog walking app and the retention is, you know, they, they get used like nine times a month. You know, are people going to use, you know, your service nine times a month? And, and it was like, well, you know, I'd just say, well, that, that dog is alive every day of the week. No, 
So if the dog is alive, it needs to be walked every day, right? And if people are working, then yeah, they need a service to walk the dog every day of the week that they're at work. Why are you comparing us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, or even food, you know, you need to have food and it's, you know, am I going to cook? Am I going to you know, buy something at the store? Am I going to have it delivered? But when it came to alcohol, you know, it's a little bit different. I'd say roughly 15 to 20% of your customer base in alcohol is really the, the people that drink a little bit more frequently or, you know, several times a month. And, uh, you know, it's not as exaggerated as like sports betting or gambling where, you know, in some instances, we've seen platforms where 0.3% of the customer base is driving 70% of the revenue. And it's all about maintaining that 0.3%. Mm-hmm. But I mean, alcohol, it's, it, you know, it's finding the people that, you know, enjoy the category, you know, maybe have a wine, you know, in the, in the evenings or, or a couple times a month or whatever it may be, and nailing that customer use case. And then we have other customer use cases where people just use it for gifting, or people use this as, as their office for gifting all their employees or, or having, you know, office happy hours or having business orders. So it's really segmenting and cohorting all the different types of use cases and customers that uh, relate to this product. It's obviously a big space, you know, over, over 100, you know, these are pre-COVID numbers, but, you know, alcohol is roughly a little over $200 billion a year in, in sales in the U.S., roughly 55% off-premise, sort of 45% on-premise. So it's, it's a big space, and it's all about finding, obviously, the people that, that use your category. So I think as we, as we think about just how marketing may change or, or, or customer acquisition may change or who the customer is, it's always just identifying those use cases. And some of those use cases have obviously changed right now where we're supporting more of that on-premise behavior, you know, Zoom happy hours, mm-hmm. you know, people sort of socially drinking with their friends, but from home. So it's, it's been interesting. Yeah, that, I really like the idea of putting the users into cohorts based on why they're using the product. That's a really good point. But the other big topic I wanted to talk about that could be probably a whole entire episode is all around partnerships. I want to hear what it's like partnering with, you know, these companies, like the industry that maybe hasn't really been online, the alcohol industry previously. And like, what does that look like behind the scenes? How are you going about partnering with these companies right now? Yeah. I mean, partnerships is a huge part of our business, both on the the marketing side, as well as just how we operate as as a company. We're a marketplace for the most part. So, you know, we partner with existing retail locations where, you know, we'll, we'll partner with a store in, in a ge- geographic area and then funnel all the volume of requests effectively to that store or a handful of stores in that area. So we're partnering with, you know, liquor stores and, and retail stores all throughout the country. And then we partner obviously with the Diageo's and Bacardi's and AB InBev's and, and those guys of the world. And, um, you know, when we first got started, the, the first ever brand partnership that we did was with Anheuser-Busch. Mm-hmm. And they actually reached out to us. It was you know, this is this $200 billion market cap company. And I think they had just started their first digital team, which was less than half a dozen people up in a, a, a garage in Palo Alto. They called the Beer Garage. Oh, nice. And a guy by the name of Mike Raspatello reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, Hey, I'm from Anheuser-Busch. We saw, I think probably because of the MeUndies campaign, we saw um, what you guys are doing. And we want to have a conversation about, you know, how do we work together? Mm-hmm. We're trying to take on digital for sort of the first time. And um, we're part of this beer garage. I think it morphed into what later became ZX Ventures, which became like a venture team of theirs. And then, you know, it's this big team now of hundreds of people over at Anheuser-Busch. Back then, it was mostly, I think, Mike and and a handful of people up in Palo Alto. And um, he reached out and he's like, yeah, we're talking to Instacart. We're talking to you guys, talking to one or two others. And we did a campaign where we, you know, promoted certain products in the category. Bud Light and 
and Stella Artois and a handful of their portfolio products and saw, you know, could you increase by featuring different brands, could you increase their share of category? You know, for them, it was, you know, our, our, our historical share of beer category is X at retail in this new online world. How do we make sure that it is more than X? And every brand has sort of approached it that way. We are X percent of our categories in retail. How do we make sure in online we are more than X? And we ran the campaign and it did extremely well. And Mike was absolutely instrumental in that and terrific guy at at Anheuser-Busch. He'd probably hate me for saying that. He's a hilarious guy. He lives in Chicago now. Catch up with him. He's he's, uh, one of my favorite people. Yeah, we ran this campaign and they came back to us afterwards and they were like, man, you guys just worked so seamlessly with us. It went so smoothly, you know, it didn't go as smoothly with some other people. And, and uh, you know, how big's your company? You guys got like four or 500 people. And I think it was just Dan, Andrew and I at the time. And I was like, yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we totally have 500 people. Huge back end helping us here. Exactly. I, you know, and I was hesitant to, to let them know, but I was like, no, it's, it's three of us right now and, and a handful of couriers. And, and they were like, what? Uh, so it was interesting in those early days, you know, it was sort of a little bit of fake it till you make it and making us feel much bigger than we were in year one. Yep. And that helped us get some of those very early partnerships. And then obviously, as we started to do more and more creative stuff, a lot of brands came knocking at our door. Um, and in many ways, outside of just promoting people in categories or integrating them into our, our content, we did some big activations and, and made a lot of noise with, with different people. And like you saw with the, the Jack Daniels and Sinatra impersonators and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, in many ways, I think people started to treat us a little bit like a creative agency. They'd come to us and say, of course, we're going to do paid placement, but what else do you crazy people come up with? And we'd come up with all sorts of cool stuff for these brands. And, and in many ways, we became sort of like an outsourced uh, agency that would help them with that stuff or even help them with some of their Facebook spending. Hey, we're, we're currently with Agency X running Facebook ads. They're telling me, you know, a customer acquisition cost of 137 bucks is fantastic. Um, yeah. Is it fantastic? We don't know. Sounds great to me. Yep. Uh, they have all these slides and whatnot. And we're like, no, that's atrocious. That is absolutely <laughs> yeah. terrible. Oh, man. Let us help you figure this stuff out. So in the early days, it was, you know, again, just being extremely helpful. But then, you know, sometimes that's not always scalable, being very hand-holding and helpful with each brand. You know, you can't translate that at our team size to every brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was coming up with a lot of templates and guidelines is finding out what's effective. How do we translate what's effective to each brand? And today, you know, our, our team on that front does a, a terrific job of still being able to come up with really creative and interesting campaigns with, with companies and execute on them. I think the biggest change that I've seen is in those early days, a lot of these, you know, they're sort of like institutions, right? These brands or, or portfolio holdings are just huge, had very rigid brand guidelines. You know, I remember working with a, a very famous champagne brand and effectively the model was, you know, they have a, like a brand authenticity team that is just protecting everything related to that brand. And, you know, they spend, you know, months specking out what a campaign looks like for billboards, TV, all this stuff. And we were effectively just another channel to put that campaign into. And that just didn't work. Yep. You know, we speak to our customers in a very unique way and you take this billboard and then just put it in Saucy and it looked very foreign. And people recognized it as sort of a foreign object and didn't respond well. And so the the brands that earlier were able to say, you know, you guys know your customers better than we do. So we're going to give you relatively all the creative freedom to speak to them, you know, with some approvals. 
those are the people that perform the best. And those are the people that have continued to perform the best. And I think the biggest change that I've seen is you've had a lot of these huge alcohol companies go from having zero person digital teams to having fully built out futures and digital teams. And then the biggest next step was those teams doing a fantastic job of working with senior leadership at those organizations to get them out of the more rigid guidelines around brand identity and being much more flexible in how they both think about campaigns, creative, talking to people, et cetera. And that's been a huge shift for them. Yeah. I love that story, especially about Anheuser-Busch. And it's just a good story that highlights the importance of finding that first partner and really giving them, like you said, like a frictionless experience where, you know, they walk away like, wow, that was easy. I didn't really have to do anything. And the team just took care of it for me. Even if it semi kills you to begin with, like that doesn't have to be a forever thing, but maybe getting that first big fish to be able to highlight, like, here's our partner is what can, you know, bring all the other partnerships your way. So yeah, such a great reminder. Yeah. All right. So I want to move into a lightning round because I know we don't have that much time left. Uh, So a lightning round brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud is where I will ask a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Chris, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What is your drink of choice? I like Michter's Rye Neat. On the rocks or how do you make it? Just neat. Michter's Rye Neat. My favorite, I think second favorite probably be Tito's Martini. After that, probably jumping into beer or wine. All right. What's up next on your Netflix queue? I'm big into murder mysteries and prison documentaries and things like that. So probably uh, something about, you know, international drug trade or, you know, world's toughest prisons in Russia or something, something along those lines. Drives my wife absolutely crazy. Oh, man, that sounds very interesting. Also, our producer Hillary said, neat means no ice stuff. Got it. Thank you, Hillary. I apparently do not know alcohol, so... <laughs> that's, that's on me. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about? And who would your first guest be? Yeah, I, you know, I've thought about this a little bit. I think that uh, I personally, when I was first starting working on businesses or trying to build, you know, a career, uh, you see the sort of end result of all these people. And you miss a lot of the details that sort of got them to where they're at or got them to how they think about the world and where they're at. You know, Guy Raz, obviously, with how I built this does a fantastic job of telling me, I think the idea of a company from start to finish. Mm-hmm. But I, I almost, I'd love to even know the, the backstory before that of a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, how did you get to the place where you wanted to jump off the cliff and start the company? And you can have a little bit on the company, but really how did you shape what ultimately became this person that's willing to take risks and, and do all these different things? I think, to be totally honest, my first interview would probably be my co-founder, Dan Leap. He has an unbelievably interesting story. He's had all sorts of twists and turns in life. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met. I would start a uh, hundred businesses with that guy, and it, it would be it would be an interesting one to listen to. Oh, that sounds good. I would definitely listen. And I love the story where founders stay together and stay friends because you always hear uh, that not always being the case. So it's really fun hearing that. Yeah, you guys continue to be good friends till this day. That's awesome. All right, the last one. What is your favorite piece of tech or an app that's making you the most efficient right now with work? <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Just my phone, my phone and these earbuds. It's ninety uh, percent of what's happening. All right. But uh, yeah, no, I'm on the phone most of the day, working with teams, video conferencing. So these these AirPods are AirPod Pros with the noise canceling. That's a game changer. I got I got three little kids uh, running around working from home, so we got uh, a noisy household. Um, so you got to be mobile and 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 uh, be able to communicate with everybody. Yep, I can relate with you there. And I almost forgot the hardest question that I need to ask you. 
what one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? How could I forget that one? <laughs> I mean, outside of what's already happening with, with COVID, yep. I think the, the biggest changes will be regulatory. We'll see what happens, but you know, things like telehealth or telemedicine or even grocery or, or even alcohol, where you're seeing a lot of the, the legislation and regulations that have been sitting you know, sort of on the books for decades or you know, 70, 80 years, in many ways are all being revisited right now to adjust to this new normal. People have been trying to push for those, those legislative changes for years and years and years. And it's kind of just been you know, under the stack of papers because why is this so important? You know, sort of who cares and we'll get to it eventually. But you're seeing a lot of that accelerate right now. And I think you know, a few big changes, depending on what industry you're in, could really unlock an entirely new world for certain e-commerce categories. So I think you know, legislation driven by change of life, change of pandemic, I think will be you know, very interesting to watch. And I think you'll see not only new categories come online, but the dramatic acceleration of some of the existing categories. Oh, I love that. That's a great answer. I'm glad I remembered to ask that question. Well, Chris, this has been such a fun interview. Where can people learn more about you and Saucy? Well, you learn anything you need about Saucy at, at saucy.com. If you want to learn about me, I guess you'd, you'd listen to this podcast or <laughs> go from there. Uh, you know, I don't have a huge online presence. Uh, it's a relatively private, but I think that um, if you want to learn more about Saucy, you can go to saucy.com. Cool. Well, I like being the exclusive source. So for all things Chris Vaughn, you're welcome, everyone. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.